0: Welcome and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh brings us his message on the subject of the resurrection. Please join us as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, The Hope of the World to Come. First Corinthians chapter 15, let's begin reading in verse 12. We, we could read the whole chapter and there's so much benefit in it. We just can't study everything every Sunday. But part of the context that's going on kind of behind the scenes, um, what's fueling this as God inspired the Apostle Paul to write this section, there was a belief that was circling through the city of Corinth, this idea that people don't raise from the dead. That's insane. And so Paul writes to this church and a little bit of that belief had started to creep in and create questions amongst the believers. And so chapter 15 is a defense of the future bodily resurrection of those who are in Christ, of the believer. And so he's got a number of arguments that are here, more than we can look at today. But we'll read one section here, beginning in verse 12, and we'll go down through verse uh, verse 26 there. So beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, and then our preaching is vain. Your faith, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. But if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Please bow with me and let's ask for God's help as we study. Oh Lord, our God. Father, you're worthy of worship every single day and every single Sunday, every single Lord's Day. We as a church family gather and we draw near we glory in you, we exalt your name, we seek your face. But God, there are some days of the year where there's a bit of heightened excitement, a bit more solemnity, Lord, and more joy. And God, this is one of those days that we remember most especially the day that Jesus conquered death, the day that he completed the work of redemption, enabling your people to have the forgiveness of sins, the redemption, the salvation we need and then that coming glory that you've promised to your people. So God, I wanna wanna ask in this time, Please give us the help, O God, that we will be strengthened and brought to joy and you will be glorified. God, as we come to understand these things more deeply. Father, sometimes we know things but don't really feel them deeply. I ask God that today you help us to feel a sense of the weight of the bigness of eternity, of what exactly it is that you have accomplished. God, I, I beg That those in the room that are unconverted, those that have not for that first time turned to Christ, God, I pray that they feel the fact that they are separated from you and they really are facing an eternity of hell, regardless of what uh, everybody in the culture says. Your word says we must be saved. God, I pray that you draw souls to yourself today. And Lord, your sons and daughters. God, you tell us that you want us to feel deeply the hope that we have. Lord, and I pray that you help us to sense that today. So please help me in everything I got to do to preach and not mess this up. And I pray, God, for all of us that we will hear, receive, be changed, bring about the miraculous things that only you can. So we pray it all through the name of Christ. Amen. In the past, you've heard me talk about a Christian by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. She's the Christian who, um, when she was a teenager, suffered a diving accident which left her paralyzed from the neck down. In the early years after her accident, she struggled with despair, depression, Bitterness towards God even attempted suicide in those early days, but over the course of coming to faith in Christ and then, and then growing to see the hope that the Christian has was strengthened and grew and grew and has now lived several decades as a great blessing to the church. And one of the places that she's proven to be such a blessing is in helping Christians to understand the role that difficulty plays in making us holy, in God's design for our pain and yeah, even our suffering, that God is using these things to prepare us for glory. One of the times that she was speaking on this subject of how pain gets us ready, makes us long, she said this, I sure hope in heaven I can bring this wheelchair I know it's not theologically correct. Ain't going to be no wheelchairs in heaven. But if I could, I would bring this one. I would put it right over here. And then in my new glorified body, standing right over here with my glorified legs, standing over here with my Savior, holding his hand, his nail print hands, I can say, thank you, Jesus. And I know he knows I mean it. And I will say to Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said in this world, we will have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you and the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened if you had not given me the bruising of that blessing of a wheelchair. And then he can send it to hell if he likes She went on to say that finally when I'm able to wipe the tears from my own eyes, I won't need to because God will do it for me. The Christian has been given an indescribable hope. Not only an indescribable hope, we've been promised an indescribably good home. In the Bible it says that for the people of God, this world is not our home. God calls his people sojourners, strangers, Exiles, pilgrims, travelers, aliens. The of Hebrews tells us that as Abraham lived in a land that was not his own in tents and traveled around and God had promised him something, but in his lifetime he did not receive the promise. The largest plot of ground that Abraham ever owned was a burial plot for his dead wife. As he lived as a sojourner, so the Christian lives in a world that is not his homeland. Hebrews 11 is a passage that talks about many believers down through the centuries of how God made promises for the glorious future, but in this age, in this lifetime, they never got to receive them. And it says this, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance, And having confessed they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. You know, our church has been blessed that we've now had a couple of families step forward to begin preparing to to go to the nations with the gospel. And as they've made this known, they've begun to be asked quite a few questions by the world. Nothing confounds the world more than something like that. Why are you going to leave and go someplace that's not your home? Why are you going to go to a strange place where they don't live like we do, don't talk like we do, have different kinds of values than us? But friends, for the Christian, that's the reality for the believer every single day in this world. We're dwelling in a place that is not our ultimate home. Traveling through in these tents as Abraham in tents on our way to the place that is our home. Philippians 3 says that our citizenship is in heaven. We are not to treat this world, this life as our ultimate building castles in the sand. We are waiting for the city which is to come. Christ has made that city ours. The Christian waits anxiously for the true life to begin. That which is life indeed. This morning, let's do a little bit of thinking about this. Let's do a little bit of thinking about this world to come. The hope of the Christian, that joy that we are waiting for. To do this, I just want to bring up a couple points this morning, particularly it being resurrection day. And let's think through first, let's talk about how Jesus' resurrection has ensured the future resurrection of his people. And then secondly, just spend a little bit of time talking about that world to come. So first, Jesus' resurrection ensures the resurrection of his people. In 1 Corinthians 15 there in that passage that we read, especially in verses 20 to 23, if you kind of look at that once again, the point is made that Jesus' resurrection is meant to serve as the first of, of many that is to come. A multitude more of resurrections to come in the future. Whenever we read the accounts of Jesus' resurrection, we see that he was raised with a, a new kind of body. When the Bible says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead or the, the first fruits of many more to come, it doesn't mean that Jesus is the first person in history to have come back to life after being dead. It happened in the Old Testament. Jesus did it several times. We know of three from the gospels that are there. But what makes Jesus' resurrection different is this. Like in John 11, when Jesus uh, raised his friend Lazarus back from the dead. When Lazarus was raised back, he was raised back with the same kind of body he had before. Same kind of body that bore the curse. Lazarus died, was raised to life. But then eventually the day came when Lazarus died again. When Jesus raised, he raised in a new kind of resurrection. A resurrection with a new kind of body. A a body that was not subject to the same kinds of frailty as this body is right here. Now, Jesus raised with a real body. We scoff at all of those idiotic ideas out there of things like, Jesus just raised spiritually, man. No, it was a real body. He ate. He drank, he hugged, they touched him. Mary Mary Magdalene clung to his feet. It was a real body. But you do notice in some of those passages that the disciples when they first saw him didn't recognize him. It looked different. There was a newness that is to it, a, a first hint of that new creation of that which cannot wear out and that which is not subject to the curse. And what Scripture tells us is Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee, the promise, the picture, the, the down payment, if you will, assuring the coming resurrection of all who are found in Christ. When mankind rebelled against God, we see Scripture show that that fall from glory that we were created in, and God spoke a curse. Sin brought the fall and the curse onto this world. This is a cursed world, a cursed life. You have a cursed body. And every single one of us in this room, we apart from Christ, we are cursed sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Friend, you got to realize that at the most basic level, when we or others ask that question about why do bad things come? And it gets asked in a thousand different ways why do bad things happen to good people? Or if God loves me, why is he allowing all this pain into my life? We have to realize that at the most basic level, bad things happen because this is a cursed world and you are under a curse and you and I deserve this. We're sometimes surprised by pain and difficulty when even the first three chapters of the Bible show us there ought not be surprised by pain. What well, we really ought to be surprised by is that we ever taste any goodness and grace at all. Because for just a moment, try to imagine what a world that was completely given over to the curse would look like. The onslaught of demonic terrors that would ravage society, the wickedness that would come out of human hearts would be absolutely terrifying if God were not day by day actively restraining evil. Friends, this is a gift of God. We need to be really thankful that we live in a world that God has chosen to not totally give us over to the evil that we deserve of the curse. This is a world under curse. You live in a cursed body. But here's what Christ has done for his people. Jesus has taken the curse on our behalf. On on another day, we'll study the the motif of the curse all the way through scripture because it is there from Genesis through Revelation. And on another day, we'll study and look how Jesus has fulfilled every single dimension of the curse in Genesis three there, where God spells out what the curse is. Jesus has taken every single part of it. But for today, let's just think about one part of it. If you were to boil the curse down, to just one image, just one picture, what would it be? I think you could argue that thorns would be an image that pretty aptly sums up what the curse is. God said that the ground which once joyfully yielded its fruit for you and there was delight in the the harvest from the bounty of the earth. Now thorns and thistles will grow and choke the life. Now a mutation, a distortion, something that chokes joy and creates pain will come on the earth. And then the severest of aspects of the curse is that death would come not only physical death, physical death is just a fraction of what the full definition of death is, what the Bible calls second death, that perishing that scripture talks about. But does it make sense for him that in order for for you Christian to be freed from the curse, Jesus took the full force of that curse onto himself. That if you think of it like this, if somehow the curse could have been could have been boiled down to one cup. It's like Jesus in his suffering of the cross and enduring the wrath of God, drank that cup all the way to the end and said it is finished, or if you were to, to twist all of the curse down to just one image like say a crown of thorns, that crown of thorns was smashed onto Jesus' head and he went to the cross, bearing that image of the curse, went to the grave kay- taking taking the full force of the severest aspect of the curse, enduring death on our behalf, going to the tomb. God said in Genesis 3, to dust you will return because from the ground you were taken. Jesus goes into the ground, dies on our behalf, but raises again, leaving the curse behind for the people of God. Jesus took the curse on himself in order to redeem us from the curse. But you know, whenever I say that word us, let me, let me pause there for just a moment and give a little bit of clarification. When I talk about the us, when the Bible says these kinds of things to the you to the and things, you do have to know who is being spoken of there. When the Bible says this, this is not talking to every single soul on the planet. This is not even talking to every single person in this room. There is a way that you become a part of the people of God. You're not born the people of God. There is a way that you must be, as Jesus said, born again. There is something you must be delivered out of and then brought into. Even though the culture mocks us, whenever we use language like this, where we say you must be saved, the Bible uses this language hundreds, not couple, hundreds of times this language is used that there is something you must be saved out of and brought into. You must be made a part of the people of God. Christ took the curse in order to make that, in order to accomplish all that was necessary. The Bible then gives you the invitation and even the command for you to now come and enter into covenant with God through Christ. Christ. But you don't get there just, just by sitting. Like that doesn't happen just because you hear it and think to yourself, well, I'm a good person. The Bible says that you will never see eternal life based on deeds that you can do because you cannot be good enough to undo the sin that you have committed. What you need is complete cleansing, forgiveness of sins. You can have eternal life, but it doesn't come through your goodness. It only comes through the blood of Christ. And the Bible says that when you... Turn to him. Not go out there, leave today, try to be a good boy, a good girl and try to obey to the best of your ability that maybe one day you'll be good enough. The Bible says that even right now, like the thief on the cross, receive forgiveness of sins in an instant at the moment of turning to Christ. Putting all of your faith, all of your trust in him, that he's my only hope and calling out to him The Bible says that at the moment you turn like that, believing on Him, you will be saved, forgiven of your sins. In one second, you cross from being not a part of the people of God to now entering the people of God. And we go on to live good works because we love Him. And this is what He calls us to. For those who are in Christ... Revelation 22 tells us that the day is coming. There is an age to come, a world to come that is curse less where the curse is removed. But until we get there, you do live under the curse. You feel it. You breathe it. You smell it. You suffer under its weight. And the day will come unless Christ returns in your lifetime where you will suffer its most painful bite But for the Christian, the curse has actually already been reversed. Not that as a Christian, somehow you live a pain-free life. Oh, no, no. God tells us he is intentionally bringing more pain into the life of a Christian than if you were not. That troubles people sometimes. God is using these things to prepare us for glory. But here's what the Bible shows us. The curse is reversed for the Christian now in this. Every difficulty that you endure in this body now that is a part of the curse is all serving you. That which once was wrecking you is now used by God for your greater everlasting joy, preparing you for the glory that is to come. God has turned everything upside down. For the Christian right now, the curse is reversed in that all of your pain, all of your difficulty is making your resurrection and the reward you will have there better. But it also prepares us like this. Food tastes better when you're hungry. Water sweeter when you're thirsty. Marital intimacy more delightful when you're longing. And your redemption will be more glorious in comparison to the difficulty you have borne, to how you have taken up your cross, died to yourself, and done so in faith. Listen to me, Christian. God is more committed to your joy than you've ever thought about being. God is so intent on doing what Romans 9 talks about, Pouring out his grace to such an abundance that whenever you walk into that kingdom, you gasp in wonder at how lavishly he has poured out his grace. He wants you to be so stunned that you respond in gratitude, in worship, you basking in him. And so he is glorified and you are brought to joy. So we win in this. Who gets the better end of the deal here? God or us? (laughs) Yes. God is worshiped. God is celebrated. God is exalted in. Everyone is loving and adoring God. And we are receiving this great grace. We are responding to the grace in worship. This is why God has ordered the cosmos the way that he has. If you understand that, you understand the storyline of history how he is working to bring ultimate glory to himself. Jesus has reversed the curse and given the promise of a day when the curse is gone. So let's do a little bit of thinking about that, this joy to come, number two. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus told a parable where he describes how we have been given talents and opportunities and the call to use our lives, not for selfish gain, to build stupid castles in the sand, but to use our lives for his glory, the advancement of his kingdom. And then the day is gonna come when the master returns and there's an accounting and it will be shown how we used our lives by faith to serve him. And as Jesus is telling this parable and he's describing the reward, of those who were faithful, he goes through each of them and he says this, well done, my good and faithful servant. You are faithful in these few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And then here's the last line that he says there. Enter the joy of your master. What does that mean? Does that mean that there's a joy that God gives? Or does it mean that there is a joy that God has And he invites us in to share in it. Both of those are good. I would take either one. But there's one that is greater. Friends, the Bible shows that there is a joy that God has. That he is the happiest being in the cosmos. And he invites his people in to drink from that joy to share in that joy, to live in the enjoyment, to be the recipients of the great fountain of joy that is himself. In Nehemiah, there was a time when the people were depressed after some confession of sin, like True Vine from Friday night, A bit of solemnity that was there. But after that time of confession of sin, God called them to take joy. But there was a little bit of a response of like, but God, I'm kind of depressed here. <laughs> Just saw a lot of myself I don't like. And the response that was given to them is this. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Meaning this. Here's how you can step forward into that grace and have joy. God himself has joy. And he is inviting you into this joy to share in it with him. We taste of it now, Christian not automatically it is a fight it is a battle that's another sermon for another day the fight for walking in joy but it is possible now to taste but God promises we will drink fully later God is the happiest being in the cosmos he is the fountain of delight This is kind of an extension from last Sunday as we looked at God as the great treasure. There is no delight that ever existed that does not find its source first in God. Delight exists because God exists. Pleasure and ecstasy of the smallest and highest kinds exist because God is a happy being. Babies giggle and toddlers dance because of the image of God they bear that hasn't been jaded yet. Jesus said in John 7, he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Scripture follows that up by saying, this he spoke of the Holy Spirit. Meaning friends, that in Christ, those rivers of living water, the, the joy, the life, the vitality, the holiness, the godliness, the worship, the exulting in God that flows out of the heart of a Christian in, in fraction pieces now that will be full later comes because of God in us. And there's coming a day when that is experienced in its fullness. Listen to me, Christian. Sons and daughters of God. The hope of the Christian is that we are invited into this infinite, eternal, never diminishing joy of God. But what does it look like? Like, as always what we want to know, isn't it? Like, I want to see it. There are places in the Bible that describe some of those. We don't have time to talk about everything today, for, but this afternoon, Revelation chapters 21 and 22, last two chapters of the Bible ends on a really happy note. The new creation is described there. But if we could see it, if we could take a breath of that sweet, curseless air, It sure would help us march through the difficulties and pains of this life. But here's the reality, Christian. God does want you to see it. He does want you to taste it, to breathe it, to begin to get a comprehension of it. But he wants you to do it by faith. And here's what that means. Here's what that means. God wants you to be so saturated by the word, thinking on the biblical language that you begin to be able to picture the images that the Bible paints, that the smells, the anticipation gets in your blood and by doing that, it begins to change you. Christian, the Bible teaches that he wants us often, often to be thinking on the joy that is to come. In fact, the Bible tells us that as we think on the joy that is to come, we will be transformed. We will become more like that place as we think on it here. Over and over again in the New Testament, we're told, set your mind on things above, not things that are here. Set your minds completely on the grace that is to be revealed to you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1 teaches us to pray, to come to understand how glorious the coming inheritance of the Christian is. So God wants you thinking of that hope often. But let's think about some of the language that the Bible uses to talk about it. Turn to a couple places. with me. Turn to 2 Corinthians for a moment, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter four. Look at a quick little place there, 2 Corinthians chapter four. And by the way, you will find so often that when the Bible talks about the hope that is to come, it puts it in relation to pain and suffering even now. You don't understand how glorious what is to come later until we come to grips with the pain and the suffering here. 2 Corinthians four sixteen. look what it says. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The man who called the suffering of this earth light and momentary is the man who was tied to a pole eight times that we know of, stripped bare, five of those times was whipped with the 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, shipwrecked, fought wild beast, put in prison dozens of times. We don't even know how many times he was arrested. Endured constant hatred and eventually died a violent and bloody death. That guy said the suffering of this earth is light and momentary compared to the glory that is to be revealed. That's telling you something about the glory that is yet to come. I don't know about you, but I think about being stripped bare and whipped one time as pretty severe. He endured it day after day after day. You do realize that God gave Paul a vision of heaven? He talks about it in 2 Corinthians 12. God gave Paul a vision of those things. And after hearing what he heard, he said, I heard things I'm not allowed to repeat. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's glorious. I saw things that he cannot describe. After seeing the glory of heaven for a little bitty vision, he came back, endured this kind of suffering and said, it's nothing. Nothing compared to the glory that is to come. That doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but how good must it be? Similar things, jump over to Romans 8 with me. Romans chapter 8, find verse 16. Romans eight sixteen. follow along with me. I'm going to read about 10 verses here, so, so track with me. Stay tuned in. Romans 8, starting verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, watch this, always put in connection with our suffering here, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, that's the curse, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. There's a metaphor right now. It's all childbirth pain, but there's a joy coming. Verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. How good must this coming glory be If this kind of language is used, that the suffering you endure now, it doesn't matter how intense. I'm so glad that that God chose the man who wrote these words, the human instrument, suffered more than I've ever thought about suffering in my life. No matter how intense your difficulty now, it is light momentary, not worthy of comparison to the glory that is to come. How good must it be? Well, you could be sitting there thinking, saying, I don't know, I'm waiting for you to tell me, pastor. What is it going to be like? This is where it gets hard. The Bible employs a great deal of poetic language to talk about what is to come. Sometimes Christians even disagree on what parts are literal and what parts are poetic. Like when when Revelation talks about New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as the city of God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. That's poetic language. When the scripture says that new wine will flow from the hills in the kingdom to come. I guess that could be literal. I think that's poetic kinds of language. Speaking of the joy that is to come. Sometimes it's not clear exactly what it's going to be like. But maybe, maybe poetry is used. Because what is to come is so unlike now. That the only way we could really get a comprehension of it would not be through scientific detail. But what makes poetry so incredible The reason why poetry and song is so good is it helps convey the weight and the feeling and the emotion and the sense of things. Hard to describe love with scientific detail, but poetry can. Maybe God uses poetic language because what is so good, we don't have the capacity right now to comprehend what it is. And listen, God has done this very intentionally. God has done it very intentionally that we can't get our minds exactly around what it will look like, what it will be like, because this means we have to trust him. God has chosen that a a great deal of the glory he gets in this life is the fact that we have to trust him. And there are things like, you've never seen it, but trust me, it's good. And we have to live by that hope. Let's come back to thinking about this future glory. Oftentimes when we talk about it, we just use the word heaven and that's fine. But we do need to know that the heaven, that if you were to die today as a believer, the heaven you would go to right now, that's not your eternal state. It's fine to call all of the future glory heaven because once you depart from this body, from this tent, you go to be with the Lord and you will be with him forever. But you do need to know that there is more to come. There's a resurrection, there's a kingdom, there's a new creation, there is eternal life, not the great eternal sit, not the great eternal cloud dwelling, eternal life, that which is life indeed. First Corinthians 15 here tells us about the resurrection of the Christian, a real bodily resurrection. Your soul which has departed to be with the Lord, if you die in this age as a Christian, It will one day be united with the body again at the return of Christ. But it is a glorified body. Philippians 3 says we will have a body like Christ's body at His resurrection. And friends, part, and hear me emphasize part, part of the good that comes in the glory to come is that you will leave behind your body of frailty. That doesn't sound all that exciting when you're 20. (laughs) Give it time, (laughs) give it time. You will experience the decay of the body. And we sometimes talk about that in laughing kinds of ways. And I think humor is not bad in this because we are looking for a hope of the future, but there is real pain. There is real difficulty that is gonna come in this body. If you die young, you will experience that kind of difficulty If God preserves your life and you grow old, you will know frailty and decay. You will know sickness, disease, injury. Pain will ravage your body the longer you go on. Frustrating things happen. There's a certain age you get injured like drinking water. (laughs) Cannot do the things you once did you're going to experience the effects of the curse in yourself one way or another. You think about things like this. Most married couples don't die at the same moment. So the majority of those who are married, one will see the death of the other. And if Jesus does not return in your lifetime, you are going to experience the most painful bite of the curse. Now Jesus says he's he's taken the venom out of the viper but it still bites. We still don't look forward to that pain. You will feel the effects of the curse. And part of the hope of the resurrection is that you will receive a body that is cursed less, but God does not just promise physical relief, but other kinds as well. God promises to wipe every tear from our eyes. Your tears of heartache, That you now know will be healed. Now, if you've lived a relatively cushy life and without a lot of pain thus far, that doesn't sound all that astounding. But for others of you who have known real darkness, you've known betrayal, you've known hurt, you've known the dark night of the soul, this sounds sweet and beautiful. You will not live scarred for eternity. Some people never recover from hurt in this life. And I do want to tell you that's not God's design for you. When you experience hurt, listen, it is okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there and dwell in that hurt. God wants you to step into the light to to believe his promises and by believing his promises come to joy and strength from those things. But oftentimes our wounds, like even whenever we walk into healing, the wounds, they heal, they're not infected, but they're still sore. But when God wipes your tears away and Revelation 22 says that he will, it means more than just you stop crying. It means God heals you. Of your hurts. Listen, friend, you will be able to speak freely of your hurts, your losses, your pains, and you won't well up. It won't be hard for you like it is here. We will be able to talk freely and we will be able to say, This is how God prepared me for glory, and you will have gratitude for every way you endure difficulty. And part of the great joy we look forward to is the leaving behind of these things, the effects of the curse. Not only leaving behind sickness and injury and disease, but also leaving behind bodies that are capable of contracting them. We're given new bodies. And that's great. But if you think that is the great glory to come, you think too small. Your new body merely enables you to live and enjoy the glory of what is to come. What will we do there? Um, Sometimes people ask, well, pastor, will we get to fish and hunt and ride a raindrop? Bacon, is there bacon in heaven, pastor? I've been asked this. (laughs) Well, do you understand that whenever we ask those kinds of things, what we're trying to do is kind of make heaven into the image of what our flesh wants. What we need to realize is that for the first time in what the Bible calls glorification, we're made holy. Our thoughts are different. Our desires are finally put in the right place. So no, I don't believe we eat bacon in the kingdom of heaven, but you ain't going to be disappointed about that. You will feast. You will drink. You will dance. We will laugh. We will delight. But the point is it will be full. Friend, if the, if the suffering and difficulty of this life is called light and momentary compared to the glory that is to be revealed there, then also the pleasure that we know here is light and momentary compared to the glory that is to be revealed there. I've had some days here on this earth. I thought if every day could be like this, that would be a happy existence. I would be happy to live this day over and over again. But the Bible calls that day nothing. The Bible calls that day light and momentary. If you think of the greatest pleasure you can consider, and God calls it light and momentary, how good will that be? Here, everything decreases. Every house, once it's built, it immediately begins to decay. Every painting, every monument, every piece of clothing, from the moment it's created, it begins to break down. Everything gets dirtier, not cleaner. Everything is digressing downward and not upward. That's the curse. But in the age to come, can you imagine a world where every good thing only increases in what makes it brilliant? Friends here, your favorite hobby eventually becomes mundane and disappoints. We have what is called here the law of diminishing returns. Now it's not everything because I find that the things that are connected to the kingdom of God do keep getting better. Our joy in our walk with Christ gets sweeter. The joy of my marriage continues to get better and better. These things connected with the kingdom of God, they do get better. But the things that are of this earth, Your favorite food doesn't taste as good as the first time you ate it. There is this law of diminishing returns. But can you imagine a place where the joy forever increases? A law of increasing returns. You will never exhaust the limits of joy because our God is infinite. Jonathan Edwards said, after they have had the pleasures of beholding the face of God millions of ages, it won't grow a dull story. Happiness here is always temporary, less than full, always diminishing. Happiness there is full and yet increasing. How can it be both? I don't know. But I believe the Bible shows that it is both, both full and satisfied and ever increasing. I'm almost done here. You kids, you guys have done really, really well. Hang in there with me. Give me four minutes. When Christ returns and brings this age to its fulfillment and we enter that world to come, listen to me, all of the cosmos will join together in the great end for which we were created, the glory of God. God. It will happen in more than one way. All of the enemies of God will be rounded up and no longer running around causing chaos. There is a pit outside the city of God. And those who have rejected Christ, those who have refused to treat him as Lord and King, they will be consigned to only bringing trouble to one another. And I need to speak to you solemnly for a second here. Some of you will be there. I don't say that because I want it to be so. I don't don't say that to try to be mean and judgy. I say that because the Bible says it and it commands preachers to give that warning. Don't go there. Look to Christ. Be safe. Admit your need. Don't be so prideful. You can't admit your need. And then look to him. Trust in him. Turn to Christ. Before you, Christian, you were made for another world. This is not your home. Live like you know it's not your home. That has a hundred different applications and a lot of them has to do with money and possessions. Live like you know this is not your home. Live like you know where your home is. Let me end with just this last quote here. C.S. Lewis towards the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis did a lot of thinking about heaven, a lot of studying of scripture and he helped children understand the gospel and heaven. And towards the end of that whole series of books, He said this, and as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was only the the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give us help in understanding and feeling the hope that we have in Christ. Father, I pray that we will live as a people that this is not our home and that we are looking for that which is to come. Fix our hope completely on it, we pray. And I pray for any in the room that is still separated from you, still in their sins because they have not yet sought forgiveness. God, I pray, wake them up to see their need and long for you. I pray today they will trust in Christ. Please give us your blessing as we leave. We ask this through Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you. Happy Resurrection Day. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh Lagrange's message titled, The Hope of the World to Come. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at TrueVineInd or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.